Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. This is a show exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. Here I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the way the outdoors has transformed them, their most vivid experiences, and how themes like risk, fear, flow, awe, and deeper connection show up in their relationship with the outdoors. That said, the nature of this conversation is a little bit different, but I think you'll find it fits into those themes nicely. As I said, this project explores the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors, but it's an exploration fundamentally of the forces of transformation and the way that the exploration of our own limits come about through adventure, but also how we can tune into different modes of connection. I often find myself pondering the different ways that one can adventure, and at some point I read an article by today's guest, Alexander Benier, about a research study he had taken part in, and I thought, damn, that is one hell of adventure that he just did. The thing is, Alexander wasn't outdoors adventuring. He was in a laboratory getting the psychedelic substance DMT injected into his veins. The study was to explore the realms one enters under the influence of DMT, but also better understand and get a sense of the entities that one regularly encounters in one of these states. One of my favorite quotes that I've mentioned a few times on this show is, Into the mountains we go in headlong pursuit of peril, the testing ground in which the self is best illuminated. In the experiment that Alexander took part in and goes into detail in this episode, it it truly feels like headlong pursuit of peril. The act of exploring one's limits, when done well, is inherently illuminating. And it can be in the outdoors, but as we talk about in this conversation, it can also be in other domains such as psychedelic as well. Alexander's got a book coming out the week that the show is. It's called The Bigger Picture. How Psychedelics Can Help Us Make Sense of the World. And it explores how the psychedelic domain of adventure can help us navigate complexity, thrive under pressure, and better practice compassion and empathy. All attributes and skills that are absolutely required in a world that is not getting any simpler. We explore many of the ideas in this book while going into detail of Alexander's experience within these trials And we also particularly explore it through the lens of adventure and draw parallels between the psychedelic and the outdoor realm when it comes to facilitating transformation or specifically reflecting on the wisdom we can gain from what we call extreme experiences. We explore the idea of peak states of consciousness and the different means that we can interpret them. I know I often fall into the trap almost creating a binary between average waking state consciousness and peak state of consciousness. But, but Ali provides a really useful model for the different ways that we can interpret the richness and salience and resonance of these states while also keeping what we call ontological flexibility, flexibility of our frames of perception and belief as we move through the world and through these complex states. It's really Really enjoyable conversation. If you are listening to this in June, uh, check out the show notes for a link to a book club where we're going to discuss uh, this this book a little bit more. But without further ado, here is Alexander Binya. 
Ali, welcome to Man and Whispers. Thank you, Tim. It's really good to be here. Superb. Well, as I was saying, um, this is a project exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors and adventure. Um, but what got me really interested in talking to you was that there are fundamentally different domains which you, one can adventure in and fundamentally different ways that we can reflect on it and translate that into meaning and wisdom. So perhaps a useful place to start. I'd love to learn uh, what your early relationship with adventure or early relationship with the outdoors was like. Yeah. Um, thanks. I, firstly, just I'm excited to have this conversation because I think the, the crossovers between uh, my world and the world you've been exploring are really, really interesting and new to me to kind of you know delve into. So that's really cool. My relationship to adventure is a good question. So certainly I would probably the, the thing that comes up first when I think about that is um, I grew up I'm half Irish and half German and I grew up in uh, a region of Germany near Frankfurt called the Taunus which is a sort of um, mountainy, foresty region. Um, it's actually where, in the very first scene of Gladiator, when they're fighting the Germanic tribes, it's literally where they would have been fighting because it was the, it's where the Limus was, which was the wall that separated the sort the, the Roman Empire from from the Germanic tribes. It's where we get the word, uh, it's not where we get the word, but it's the same root as the word liminal, right? It's kind of like the space between. Um, so that forest, that I grew up right beside, um, actually a couple of different ones, but one of them in particular, um, that, that I guess that's what I associate with wildness, even though of course it's a managed forest, it was quite a large one and full of wild boar and deer and just about sort of big enough that you could get lost in it, right? Probably someone would find you, but it just had that feeling of, of um, slight, um, kind of the promise of darkness in some way, right? The kind of like uncertainty. And I, I kind of associate that with, with adventure, you know, just um, that I think it has to have that sense of wildness in some way. And I think, you know, now I live in the UK and there are very few, if any, wild places. Um, it's the same in Ireland, really. There's, uh, you know, it's just historical. Ever they, they cut down or we cut down all the forests um, for the wood to build ships and, and whatnot. So this sense of um, wildness is something that I'm really drawn to. Um, and so I would just walk in the forest a lot and it wasn't necessarily adventuring, but I, I guess what I associate with it is walking down the sort of paths of the forest, which are sort of um, the safe routes and really being drawn to, you know, going and adventuring, which, which I, I did a couple of times, you know, just kind of delve in and, you know, capture boar and deer and, and whatnot. He's kind of entering a different world, a different domain other than your own. So that's kind of uh, what comes up. But um, I haven't done anything, uh, let's say, more intense than that um, outdoors wise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and it's important to note that there is like, in speaking of the liminal, there is different thresholds of wildness and different thresholds of adventure. It's funny. I, so where I live in Squamish is like a mecca for adventure, rock climbing, mountain biking, adventure sports. And the thing you say is you, you have to, every time you meet a stranger, you have to be a humble, you have to be humble because it could well be a world-class athlete that you're speaking to. Um, and so what some people in my workplace will say is incredibly badass is just an average day. Um, for for someone else, um, and it's more the practice you have around it 
um, that shapes it. Um, and so there's two things there. There, there is the, um, the wildness or one's own edge of comfort. Uh, and then there is also what sounded like a level of enchantment or curiosity. I'm, I'm curious how those two kind of played into it. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting. I mean, enchantment is something that firstly, I love the word enchantment. And I think just, you know, in the bigger question of um, the world we live in enchantment, it's a disenchanted world. Right. And so there's this, the magic and the uncertain, well, not the uncertainty, but the magic has been stripped out of the world in many ways. Um, and so, you know, some people talk about the re-enchantment of the world and there's something very, um, there's something very important about that. But um, just to plant a flag in that, the there is something, and I, I would say, I would use the word magic in a sense of, um, in kind of a qualified way. There is something magic about wild places or for me, the forest in particular, because it's, well, there's an aspect of it that is unknown. There's a kind of uh, a agency and intelligence to it, which we know now from the, the kind of the size of trees and how they communicate with one another. Um, I just read The Hidden Life of Trees, um, which is uh, literally just a, a couple of weeks ago. So that's very fresh for me. Um, and there's also this link it, it, for me personally with um, probably more the Irish side of, of my background with entities being in the forest or in in nature and my mum used to when i was a kid um leave little coins and stuff in in the garden or like if we went to visit you know she'd do it if we went to visit a friend or something like that leave coins and different like in a nook in a tree or under a rock wherever it might be and we would go out or i would go out I was much younger than my brother and sister so it was very much a kind of personal thing go out and find the coins and the idea was that they've been left by the fairies right so this real sense of like there, there's some kind of mm, hidden intelligence in in the forest and that for me is quite enchanting right because i thought i don't think i don't think enchantment can work without agency of some kind right some kind of participation where the world is speaking back to us in some way like the key like you know this keyboard that i'm sitting beside like i don't i would be hard pressed to find it enchanting unless perhaps i was on psychedelics in which case then, <laughs> then i might but you know generally this the sense that like living systems and living things have an enchanting quality to them whereas objects and dead systems um closed kind of systems like cars engine um they might be really interesting but they're not enchanting in that way they don't have that kind of um life of their own basically yeah absolutely and and that's part of this exploration is that in using the outdoors as a partner or or or, or an ally i say that rather than modality because it kind of sounds transactional uh, as a partner or ally for transformation and that you can utilize that level of intelligence. So there's a, a, a practice you can build around or around enchantment in order to get transformation from spending time in, in wild places. So that's the kind of a, a lot of the work that um, Rafe Kelly and Kyle Cock are doing in evolve move play is things like sit spots where 
it's a stillness practice that you're that you're um, able to use the environment around you as a way to to to, to seek insight and, and wisdom essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I mean, because I think what it taps one of the things it taps into is well, what what John Verveke would call a participatory knowing, mm-hmm. right? So so that you have this dynamic um, relationship with your environment. Um, and that is that, you know, that's what we get into in a much kind of in a deep flow state, for example. So that uh, I, I also like what I also love about their practices and that idea in general is that a lot of contemplation practices uh, are removed from nature and, and are removed from the natural environment. Um, whereas something that really engages with the environment and speaks to it in like a dialogue in some way, even metaphorically, that it's impacting me. And in a sense, my presence is impacting it. And something new is forming from the combination of me sitting in a forest, me sitting in that position. Um, I'm not like a passive observer, in a sense, I'm I'm an active agent within that system. And I think that kind of um, agency and connection and engagement with the world is is hugely important and massively lacking for example in the online world in which case we kind of are engaging with it but not with our bodies or at least not with our whole bodies let's say you you are absolutely right and and i i really do part of this project is to be able to articulate um the like the wellspring of meaning that you can access from practices like it and 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 it's something that's part of of my exploration is just like the way that uh after an incredibly long and stressful week and that just wandering into the forest and kind of participative practice can can recharge me that way Mm. and but the other thing i wanted to 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 point to as you were talking about participatory flow is an idea I kind of layer onto this from, from John Viveki is hot, cold versus flow, uh, cold flow. And that what we're talking about is really a kind of cold um, contemplative flow. But what you were talking about earlier around enchantment versus a kind of darkness adventure, um, the adventure is a kind of hot flow. So anytime you're at your limit, whether that's fair risk, physical ability and forced to give your full engagement, full participation in order to manage a very high consequence situation. Mm. That's kind of all the, the, the ingredients to enter a kind of hot flow state essentially. Yes, yes mm-hmm. definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, th- that makes me think of um, something I know we're going to get onto at some point, but it feels quite alive now, which is the, uh, the, the DMT, extended state trial that I was part of because there was a very much, so I mean, I should probably explain. Let's, let's transition into that. Perfect. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So I'm going to actually start with what DMT is because that's, uh, I think for for anyone listening or or watching, that's, um, that might not be familiar. So DMT is a psychedelic molecule, which is uh, often ingested by kind of vaporizing it. Um, It's incredibly, powerful it lasts for about sort of 10 minutes um and it's a complete uh, basically people have the experience of entering a completely different reality that most people really when asked about it um in studies would say yes the reality felt um 
realer than re as real as the reality we're in, or sometimes there's this phrase realer than real, right? So incredibly highly meaningful and, and everything's very salient and calling for your attention and very intense. Um, it's got, it's also very much associated with the encounter of entities. So um, seemingly uh, living beings, a bit like the fairies I was uh, talking about, except um, with a kind of agenda and identity uh, of their own that, that, and they're incredibly strange and take all sorts of different forms. So it's uh, it's a real scientific conundrum. Like why is any of this happening, right? Um, and at Imperial College here in London, uh, they've done a lot of the psychedelic research that's um, sort of driven the, the kind of change in perception of the psychedelic renaissance over the last say 10, 10 years or more. Um, they ran a study about basically investigating what happens if you inject people with DMT for 30 minutes straight. So the experience was actually about 40 minutes long. Um, uh, and so that was a really groundbreaking study on healthy volunteers, basically, of, of which I was one. Um, and I was actually on the dose finding. It's still, it's still ongoing, the study. I was on the, with um, originally 11, and then I believe it went down to eight or nine of us because a bunch of people dropped out. So it's very intense. <laughs> um, seeing what we were actually, what they were looking at with us was, could they get the dosage right? Because so DMT is produced by your brain and is actually found in possibly even every plant, but certainly most plants that we'll look at if you try and test for DMT, it's, it's there somewhere. Um, and so when you, it's also what's in ayahuasca, people might've heard of ayahuasca. So it's one of the active ingredients. So when you smoke it, your body metabolizes it really quickly because it's already part of your metabolism. Right? And it's still kind of mysterious as to exactly why it might play a role in dreaming and near-death experiences, but it's, you know, the jury's still actually out. There's a lot of debate around that. So that means that they were pumping it into our blood and trying to get the right amount at the right uh, speed, I guess, to simplify it, to keep us in a plateau. So to keep us at the peak of the experience for as long as possible. And during it, we had to say occasionally in the headphones, a voice would come in and say intensity rating zero to 10. And we had to say <laughs> zero to 10, which uh, I actually found not so difficult to do, um, which I can get onto. But so that experience, so when I signed up for it, I did it out of a sense of adventure primarily, right? Because that, that was it. I was like, this is absolutely wild. I couldn't believe that they were doing it and that they've been given permission to do it. And I just really wanted to experience it. And so, you know, I have a, um, a long history with psychedelic exploration. Um, and, and I've been, a, um, I suppose, a cultural commentator and thinker in the psychedelic space for um, so it's about maybe 15 years or so since, since I was like 20 or so. I just have a podcast and then I wrote a novel about psychedelics. Um, and so I've always been really interested in phenomenology basically like what is going on just the experience itself like just becoming really curious about the experience what what we're seeing feeling perceiving and how to navigate that domain that realm and so in the lead up to the study i decided to like treat it like um kind of felt like treating it like a kind of astronaut mission right like a kind of or or a long you know kind of um voyage basically 
And so I stopped. Uh, you were allowed to drink alcohol actually during it. You weren't allowed to take any other drugs. But I was like, no, I'm going to go completely like, you know, for six or seven months. I just stopped drinking alcohol. I was quite healthy. I was doing um, coaching with with a, a coach I worked with called Trish Blaine, who who's kind of an expert in non-ordinary states and how to navigate them. So I was trying to prepare for what might come up. Um, so it felt like this kind of uh, preparing for adventure in the sense of body, mind, spirit. Um, and then I was also particularly preparing for the first two or three minutes because the first two or three minutes are extremely intense. And there's this line that uh, Terence McKenna, who's a psychedelic uh, philosopher and counterculture figure who's really associated with DMT. He, he had this line about DMT, don't give way to amazement, right? And so I had that really, it was like a mantra. I was like, okay, how am I going to hold my shit together to not give way to amazement in those first three minutes? Because my, my objective was to keep my agency and focus and discernment so that in this incredibly intense environment where everything, you know, your emotions, your perceptions are really heightened, you're encountered with intensely alien, intensely alien experience that simultaneously feels somewhat familiar but you retain on on NNDMT, which is the top DMT that this was, you retain your agency and you are able to, to really, you know, effectively, sometimes I was floating in a void, a kind of geometric void by myself and, and at the beginning of the experience. And I would call out like, anyone there? Like, you know, like that literally, and then have to actively focus on how do I move through the space? How do I open up new new realms? And um, and it was also intensely therapeutic and personal. Um, Sorry, so. when you say maintain agency, do you mean maintain your sense of self? Like you could tell you knew who Ali was the entire time. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, and so even in the very, you know, it's interesting. Like DMT is often associated with this kind of very metaphysical going out there. And one of my big lessons in it was that. Um, you know, it's funny, but I do a lot of, um, you know, I'm trained as a, as a holistic counselor and I do a lot of therapy and inner growth work, you know, especially over the last sort of five or six years and going into it, I was saying like, I'm just, I'm so done. I'm like working on myself. I just, I just want to see aliens just go, you know, go for it. That's I have a wild experience and what I got in the very first dosing and subsequently was very much deep inner work with deep metaphysical exploration, which was, um, yeah, which was something that was really quite uh, profound. And yeah, you very much have, it's a very, um, well, there's a scientist called Rick Strassman who did the first sort of um, DMT study after uh, research was halted. So this was in the 1990s. And he was, he managed to get permission to experiment on people. He is a book is called DMT, the spirit molecule. And there was actually a uh, documentary that might still be on Netflix if people want to check it out. Um, so Strassman is a Buddhist or at least was then. And a lot of his participants were as well. So they were expecting this mystical experience where you of ego dissolution of less for Samadhi, like nothingness. And instead they had this experience of encountering entities, you know, being taken to space stations, being investigated by you know, lizard people and like, and he afterwards was trying to make sense of this and was, uh, he wrote then another book called DMT and the soul of prophecy, where he argues that actually the better way to make sense of that particular experience 
is through the biblical idea of prophecy in the sense that you have a kind of mystical experience like Moses did where he's Moses, but there's a burning bush talking to him and giving him instruction. And he's still in this kind of, like we were talking about before, he's in this participatory relationship with, with the experience he's having. Um, and he's still himself, even if he's an expanded kind of version of himself. So that's what the DMT experience is like. And, and my sort of adventure was, can I get any useful information out of this experience? You know, taking, um, taking seriously the idea that a lot of people have that it might be that we are accessing a coherent and real different reality, but mentally rather than physically. And if that is the case, like many indigenous cultures have you know, said for a very long time, that there are other intelligences and that there are other uh, realms and dimensions. I'm agnostic about that, by the way, but you know, for the, for the purposes of this, I was like, let's, let's take it seriously and see what happens. Um, I wanted to, um, learn and gain, and gain information. And so that was, that was kind of the adventure. Mm. And I'm trying to sense whether on that Terrence McKenna of don't give way to amazement. Is that specifically around like you're on a space mission to discern and therefore you've got to kind of hold your own? Yeah, in a sense, yes. Yeah, it's actually something some of the entities he encountered said to him, right? And I, the context is like, there's something to learn here and something to be gleaned. And if you give way to sort of like, if, imagine you're at a carnival and you're like, oh my God, everything's so bright and colorful and what's going on. But there's someone at the carnival with really important information for you or you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. That's that kind of context. So instead you have to keep your wits about you and keep your... Um, discernment um and uh, what's called in in mindfulness decentering being able to take a step back from the experience without sort of avoiding or disconnecting from it which is why i found the headphone voice asking intensity rating zero to ten actually really useful because what it helped me to do was go okay hang on a second zoom out i'm having a you know i'm in a drug experience what is the intensity right now, you know? And that's a really healthy and, and helpful thing to do under, in an environment where there's a tremendous amount going on, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a, um, I suppose, yes, a sense of psychological danger, certainly, if not physical, not so much, because I was in a hospital with medics and I felt actually physically really safe the whole time. Um, but that was really, uh, really helpful. And a lot of my training that I was doing in advance um, was really around that. I mean, if I had to boil it down, it would be like how to stay connected to my own sense of me and how to stay discerning. And, but the discernment you need is extremely subtle, right? Like, and this is true, I think of all psychedelic experiences, particularly if you're interested in sort of unraveling your own inner psyche and, um, and what else, whatever else might be going on in the experience. The, what really helps is to have this, deep curiosity and this deep discernment together for example there, there would be some times where i was encountering you know encountering an entity and going through something and then there would just be the slightest flicker of something that i could recognize as my own self-delusion just in that moment i'd be like wait a minute now i'm bullshitting myself there right and i could kind of catch it and then if i if i could manage to do that I could then unpick it and then something else would open up some deeper insight about myself or a deeper insight about what was going on. But because there's 
so much going on at the same time. There's geometric imagery, there's eerily intense body sensations. You have to, you have to maintain that discernment um, while there's a lot going on. So it's a kind of, it's, it's kind of, um, it's a practice, basically. It's kind of a, an art form. It's a bit like the Zen proverb of an hour of, you know, an hour of, what is it? Uh, a minute of meditation in the marketplace is worth an hour on the mat, right? It's, it's that kind of thing. It's like you go into the extreme and apply those skills. And, you know, it, as well as being deeply meaningful, um, it was also a, a tremendous amount of fun and just like a really fun skill to practice. Like I, there's something about going right to the edge of, um, inner exploration that absolutely um, I kind of live for. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And I really want to double click on inner exploration. Um, but before we kind of move to that, I'd love to examine that experience of discernment through, I guess, the lens of what we know about flow states. Uh, and oh. something I often struggle with when I'm in those states is remaining in the deep now. Uh, while also focusing on what I'm going to take back. I, perhaps um, it's obsessing too much over what I can take back, but often find myself in trying to discern being pulled into the future of what am I going to take back from this? What is the wisdom? How can I find something to take back rather than actually be able to navigate? Whereas it sounded like what you were talking about is discernment is being able to actually navigate the spaceship in flight a little bit more. Yes. I mean, that's a really interesting point. In my view, it's both actually. So what I'm particularly, I guess what I kind of nerd out about is like how to navigate the spaceship um, in, in the psychedelic experience and then by extension in how we make sense of the world, which is, which is the kind of thesis of my book, basically. It's that those same skills that we use to do that can then be exacted, which is a phrase I got from John Verveke, uh, taken and reapplied to a different domain because the modern world has that level of intensity, which, which I, I can go into in a bit, but I want to, I want to um, stay focused on, on the, the point you just made. So it is about navigating the spaceship and then the idea of how do I take something back with me that's useful, that was also on my mind, very much so. But that was a little bit easier in practical terms. And maybe there's something in this that can be applied more broadly. But like the the reflect after we had the dosings, we would then lie back after a kind of a short break, we would lie back and Lisa Luan, who's one of the uh, scientists running the study, she would go through the timeline and ask you, so we would re- relate the experience in the present tense as if it was still happening without meaning making, right? So without jumping to meaning, but just saying, okay, it's like, okay. And then I'm noticing that I have this intense you know, feeling in my chest and there's a lot of grief associated with it. And then a moment later, I'm exploring this and there's this entity comes and so that process of reflecting and knowing that was coming that was really helpful for not worrying about i'm going to not be able to take anything back with me right and so there's something about structuring reflection into an experience i think which is really important there right because if we don't reflect on it we do lose a lot but in a way what is it i'm trying to say i think it's something around that reflection 
can be a part of the experience itself. So it can be in that deep flow and simultaneously sort of reflecting on, okay, what am I learning here? What am I going to bring back? But we can also do it after we come down, so to speak. And after we're reflecting, ideally shortly afterwards, because otherwise you forget everything and go, okay, what, what am I noticing about? Yeah. What, what came up for me and what were common themes? What was I really feeling? What was I really experiencing? What have I really learned? Um, so there's something about reflection that's kind of essential as it, but it, it somehow happens at it or can happen at a different time rather than during the experience. And maybe that's a way to sort of stay deeply present in it. Like, yeah. Yeah. You, if that's the case, do you find yourself, did you find yourself at all, um, focusing on the narrative arc of the experience? I could almost see if, if the focus is being able to recount it at the end and then reflect on it, you almost lose a level of presence by being like, what happened before this? What happened before that? How am I going to tell the story kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> this is a really interesting question for me because basically I started the study keeping a diary and was just kind of, you know, um, very much uh, just curious and just kind of doing it partly as a creative writing exercise and partly just to make sense of it all. And then, and then I was like, actually, these diaries would be really good to publish, like probably just on, on Substack. And then I got um, a approach to do the book and the book is really kind of, it's called The Bigger Picture. So it's really how can psychedelics change society? How can they help us make sense of the crisis of the times that we're going through? Um, but also the narrative thread is the DMT dosings is a narrative thread through the book. So by the fourth, yeah, by the fourth dosing, um, oh no, sorry, actually I've done all the dosings. Um, they gave us an extra dosing while I was writing the book because they got the dose right, right? And so I had this sort of narrative journey of the dosings already in my head. and But I hadn't had the sort of big metaphysical experience. I'd had some, but I hadn't had the kind of full breakthrough metaphysical DMT experience. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That, that just is what it is. And I'll just work with that in the book. And so in that last dosing where they kind of got the dose right, they didn't say this to us because they're scientists, but I just had a sense of like, I bet they just want to see if it worked. <laughs> like they've got all this data and it absolutely did. But in that dosing, I was already writing the book and I had this urge to be like, I want to finish the story of these dosings because there really was a continuity and like the story was really based around like my relationship with intimacy in general, like that was the flow. And there was a real beautiful teaching in, in each of it and each dosing built on the dosing before it. And it was, it was, you know, it was beautiful, beautiful. And it would have been complete like that. Um, but I actually said when the DMT came on, I often have, I, I experience what I call a, a teaching presence. So it's almost like I'm communicating with the DMT or the psilocybin. And some people have that experience. Others, others don't, you know, it just kind of depends, but I have this dialogue always. And uh, the teaching presence was like, well, what are you here for? What do you want? And I was like, I want a good end to my story. <laughs> I actually like super explicit about it. And it was like, okay, you know, and you know, so this is a real, I mean, and I did, I got a full incredible breakthrough, um, experience which was really fascinating and lots to explore and it you know it's really interesting because it begs the question of you know is it all us is it like a really deep kind of process of like a kind of an inner beautiful inner world coming to a kind of cohesive narrative about ourselves that helps us in the world uh is it something but is it that combined with literally encountering entities and aliens that's where i've landed that's where i kind of tentatively sit i'm like 
and I think what it what it kind of brought me to is that 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 kind of experience makes a lot more sense in a uh, in a panpsychist or idealist view of reality, which is that consciousness is a fundamental aspect of the universe. Either that the universe is a ment- is entirely mental, which is idealism, or that matter and consciousness are basically the same thing and interlinked, which is more kind of panpsychist. So that was the only real way to make sense of the, or not, not the only way, but that was the way that felt most intellectually satisfying for me uh, and spiritually consistent for me to make sense of the experience. So, but yeah, long answer to say, yeah, storytelling was like very much on my mind because Mm -hmm. it always is because that's kind of what I do for a living. So it's almost like impossible for it not to be. And other people have very different experiences, perhaps was um, that's not part of their career or their life or what they do, you know, and that those will be different some other domain. I'm curious in that experience, um, how did fear show up? Was, was there elements where you felt like you were really being pulled or pushed into new territory? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fear, it's an interesting one. I, I went through a lot of, um, like I, I've done a lot of similar experiences, uh, particularly with ayahuasca in the past. And so I didn't have a whole lot of fear. Um, I experienced fear during it, but I have like a, an attitude of radical acceptance and radical, almost confrontational acceptance in that space. So there was a time where, for example, I had this, which I describe in the book, it was really wild, an entity encounter with a kind of spider, uh, female spider entity, like a spider queen. And it was simultaneously my relationship to the feminine and my relationship to intimacy and engulfment. But it was also a distinct entity and that just both were true at the same time. And I, you know, I'm still trying to make sense of it in some ways. But there was a moment in that where it, she got really, really dark and menacing and I was sort of like trapped. And the general attitude, just because from a lot of psychedelic experience was like, bring it on. Let's see how dark can this get, right? Like, like let's really go into it. And it's just like the the imagery got like really twisted and graveyardy and skulls and like rot and decay. But by really focusing in and leaning into it and being curious about like, yeah, great. What is this? Like what, what's going on here? Like saying good to it, you know, saying yes. Then it kind of transformed into something else. And that is a very important way in my view to navigate a psychedelic experience if you're not suffering from a lot of trauma, in which case then that's a little bit, you know, kind of be careful, you know, go, go easy on yourself. And like, it's a lot of nuance in this, but from the perspective of like intense um, psychonautical exploration for the sake of exploration, that for me really worked very well. And that's, you know, that's, um, yeah, I think quite an important aspect of it. You know, I experienced a very, very profound grief and sadness related to some things in my life and some relationships. And so, intense emotion and, and emotions I didn't really you know that were so hard to sit with but you know you kind of very don't have very much choice in a way and the, the DMT at least for me certainly helped me to which is it has this beautiful healing and supportive quality to it um and you know there were there were moments where I felt physical like there's a lot of anxiety in the initial which is like body anxiety which I'd, I'd be very curious about people from the extreme sports world if there's this kind of experience of like like I get public speaking, it's just like my whole body is terrified, but my mind is 
fairly okay. Sometimes my mind is terrified too, or scared at least. But in this case, when the DMT comes in, um, because it comes in very intensely through the, um, you know, the pump, my body reaction was like, oof, intense anxiety. In fact, all of ours was on the, the dosing study and our heart rates like shot up very intensely for a few minutes and then leveled down. And that was consistent with, with all of us, which is really interesting. So there's a kind of physiological fear that comes along with it that really, um, I guess everyone just kind of has to ride using physiological, like breathing, mainly breathing, right? That's kind of, I think, the go-to for most people who explore these kind of spaces. So breathing through it, not freaking out, knowing it's temporary, knowing that it's going to pass, just riding it, basically riding that feeling. And I'd often have to pee. Like after the first one, I really had to pee badly. And I was like, oh, I'm going to piss myself. It's going to be really embarrassing in front of all these scientists. Like, And then to the next one, I was really careful with how much water I drank. But that that pee thing was really just like an anxiety feeling, right? So it's very intense. Um, that just has to be... Um, dealt you know you just have to ride it ride it through and just be with yourself and just be compassionate with yourself and be i think overall patient and and breath is probably by far the most important aspect of it. there's a bunch of, of parallels between this level of adventure and and let's call it the psychic realm versus the the physical realm and that you get some athletes who are kind of the, the biological freaks who don't experience any level of physical um anxiety or fear but the majority of people have to uh, learn to regulate it. And there's the other very cool thing to think about is the practice of gaining intuition and by being able to discern what your body is telling you on a very high consequence uh, experience and on um, whether or not it is the day to take that risk. But the, the other parallel I hear from you describing that is fear for you in this realm is deeply linked to your assessment of risk. So you mentioned that uh, your uh, trauma is a part in this. And so you've had the experience one, you've, you've had psychedelic experience. So you know that realm, but two, you also know what to expect from it. So you know what level of risk you're taking. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I mean, I find firstly, I find that fascinating about that, the kind of like deep intuition with the body and listening to it. I think that's, I'd love to delve into that uh, more just in terms of my own life. Um, but, but also, yes, so I know the experience, but I think also I, I have a really healthy respect for it because I have had bad experiences and I've had experiences which I would, I would, if I, you know, I often compare it to like skydiving, like psychedelic experiences. And I've had experiences where, you know, metaphorically, it's like my parachute didn't quite, open, like I basically like, you know, got overwhelmed in the experience, but it was a bad time in my life. Uh, it was a kind of, it was maybe like a long, this was a while ago, like, uh, 10, more than 10 years ago, sort of um, in my mid twenties and like, you know, just a bit, you know, wanted to be a writer, was a writer, but also had to work in like marketing agencies and being like, oh my God, what if I never make it and never get to write anything? It's just like I was in a life crisis and I took some um, uh, TMA2, which is like a research chemical and took more than I should have, hoping to have like a breakthrough, but it was absolutely a mistake. And it was the one experience where I sort of, did lose my shit in it. And that like, you know, took, um, took several years, brought me on a kind of dark night of the soul and took me several years to fully recover from, I would say probably five years to fully recover from, um, much of it probably wasn't visible to everyone around me, but, um, and actually what got me interested in, in therapy and actually talking through things and processing things. So all in all, it was a gift, but 
of course that stays with you. I imagine like if you have a really close call skydiving or, you know, you kind of parachute half open, you broke a leg or you kind of got injured, but not so badly, you couldn't do it again. Um, that basically that experience and other experiences where, you know, I kind of, uh, I've had a difficult time or I've kind of made a few mistakes. I was the wrong setting or the wrong time, or, you know, the dose was too high, which weren't as dramatic. That gives, that's given me a really healthy respect for, uh, for those molecules and medicines. And so I actually don't do them very much either. So there's something about the controlled setting of the lab, which was really, um, really kind of almost reassuring in a way. I was like, I know what the dose is. I know I'm physically safe. Like that was quite, that almost gave me the kind of, it's like, you know, your equipment's fine. You know, it's like, you're like, okay, great. I'm a hundred percent sure uh, that this stuff is okay. So, so in that sense, like, um, yeah, knowing the terrain and knowing the territory, super, super important. Transitioning into, I guess, the stories that we take from it or how we can use these transformative or um, adventurous experiences to kind of bring us more meaning, more wisdom, etc. I'd love to transition into, I guess, your experience with this trial, but also kind of the, the thesis of the bigger picture with how one can take these ventures into the, the abyss and exact that perhaps into ways that we can better show up in the 3D world. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, for me, one of the most important aspects of, um, well, certainly psychedelics, but perhaps intense experience overall. I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of lessons. I mean, one of them, and maybe one of the biggest for the times we live in is how to navigate complexity, how to, when everything is confusing, there's a huge amount of information coming our way. Um, what John Verbecki calls a combinatorial explosion, right? There's just huge amounts of information. There's a lot of uncertainty. We don't even necessarily know now uh, what image is real or not true. I just you know, because of AI, we don't know if we're talking to someone who's real or just a really advanced chatbot. Like the level of intensity, confusion, and strangeness in the world has skyrocketed. And so, and despite that, we still need to find ways to make sense together, come to decisions, and then enact new solutions to our problems. Because if we don't do that, we'll, we won't survive as, as a species. So the pressure is really on collectively right now. And the sense of being able to not just act under pressure, but like thrive with pressure and to embrace it and to flow with it and to um, to see the beauty in it and to almost allow it to ignite our creativity and our imagination. That's something that is so powerfully part of the psychedelic experience, not just for me, but for so many people. And I would imagine extreme experience in general, right? So that so there's there's that kind of bigger view of it. There's also a lot of individual qualities that we can cultivate. So creativity, um, being able to entertain multiple ideas at the same time without collapsing down into an ideology, discernment, like I was talking about before, um, a sort of a deep sense of um, compassion and understanding of, of different perspectives being different perspectives rather than right or wrong perspectives. Um, a lot of that, or in fact, all of those qualities are particularly important for navigating a, a psychedelic experience. And then also there's a level of courage 
that you need, which is key, right? The actual ability to lean in and commit to something, even though you don't know what the outcome's gonna be, and even though the um, the stakes are uncertain, like for example, different ways to tackle uh, climate change and different ways to tackle um, other existential risks like AI right now. It's like, okay, we have so many different ways we could approach AI, so many different lenses through which to do it, how we approach it, is as important as what we do because the attitude and the values that we bring to it are going to then determine the actual actions that we take. So being very aligned and very sort of clear on the how, that how we do things is as important as what we do. Uh, that's another quality that that is very clear or like a dynamic that's very clear in a, in a heightened psychedelic experience. The courage piece especially is translatable across all levels of extreme experience. And, and something that, that I really like to explore here is um, for a lot of people, at least in the extreme sports realm, uh, it's less scary for them to do something incredibly dangerous in the outdoors than have say a vulnerable conversation with a partner. And so being able to take the somatic experience of being scared at the top of a, a, a mountain line and diving in regardless and then exact that into another setting that you're a lot less comfortable or equipped in, I think is um, an incredibly powerful practice. And it sounds like there's a lot of other aspects you can do that in translating the psychedelic realm as well. Definitely. I love that example, by the way. I think that, I think that's really nice because it's sort of like, it's like the flip side with me where, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty avoidant as well. I mean, I do have those vulnerable intimate conversations, but I'm always also like still scared, but the idea of standing on top of a mountain and I'm about to like dive off in a, you know, in like a, one of those wingsuits, <laughs> absolutely terrifying for me. I was like, no, no, I'll have a vulnerable conversation. But yeah, to, to your point, like there's, there's so many, um, there's so many different particular qualities, but there's also like, um, there's also this quality and it's a little bit in, in what you mentioned of like a connection to yourself, like a deep connection to your own perspective and your own self while also being deeply connected to the world, right? That's something that the psychedelic experience really um, brings us to. And, and it kind of cuts through the, uh, cuts through the bullshit and the noise in a sense. And very often there's a, there's a moment of, of real clarity of this is really the, what's going on with me. Like all this other stuff is, is kind of noise, but what's really going on is that I feel really scared about this or what's really going on is that I deeply like, I have deep longing to, to feel this or to do this. And there's a kind of simplicity to it as well, which I think can really cut through the, the complexity of modern life and the complexity of, of what we're facing culturally. Like it seems that so many of our political and social issues are this kind of deeply nasty interwoven tangle of stuff. But at the same time, on some level, there's kind of simple desires and needs that, that we all have that are trying to get met um, on a kind of deeply emotional level. So um, it's got that, yeah, that aspect of it, I think is, is also really important. I mean, I'm so glad you, you, you brought that up because this is kind of the, the other like very uh, key way that it translates is the level of insight and clarity that, that you can access both uh, when a, um, a trip goes well, um, that kind of being able to zoom in on your life, see your life cycle or see the, the moving parts to, um, what Peter Lindbergh would call an existential knot that's within you. 
uh, is something that translates across like the, um, the outdoor domain So in uh, what I find on a multi-day backpacking trip or something versus, um, a trip and, and a useful tool. Um, so like Jamie wheels thesis, he talks about an idea called hedonic engineering of you want to design your, your year or your seasons in a way that gives you or best it gives you access to inspiration, healing, and connection. I'm curious your take on access to those higher states or specifically if you have heuristic or map of levels of consciousness. So like, for example, um, Jamie will talk about like, neoplatonist ideas as being useful for being able to access the information layer if you do it right do you buy into to any of that yeah I, I mean kind of kind of i mean it's a tricky one for me i'm still kind of wrestling with this because i, I was very influenced by uh integral by ken, ken wilbur's uh philosophy and other related thinkers the idea of um Yes, kind of that uh, developmental models of of human experience and understanding. And I do think one of the, I think, great insights of Integral is that we interpret a state um, of consciousness. So like waking, dreaming, tripping, high intensity flow state, whatever it might be, that we interpret the state at our stage of sort of moral, uh, cognitive, emotional development. Um, so, for example, if... Um, if uh, you know an Inuit man in the 1800s had a particular psychedelic experience or a dream, um, he would have interpreted it through the lens of his particular cultural uh, background, right? Whereas if if someone now has that same experience, uh, they might be say a Jungian, and she might interpret it through a kind of Jungian psychology lens or something else, um, and a different moral framework, for example. And that I think is true largely. The problem with different levels is that there's a value judgment immediately if you're like, okay, this level is more advanced than this level. And who makes that judgment is like very contentious, right? So, um, and in some sense, I mean, integral solution to that is that the more empathetic levels are more in a sense advanced, but it's not like the lower levels aren't important. So we kind of grow and accept more and more perspectives. Like basically, um, Hansi Freinach, who uh, is a meta-modern thinker, was actually two people, um, but uh, has a kind of quip, which is like, whoever has the most perspectives wins, right? So it's this kind of multi-perspectival approach, which largely I'm into. And I kind of agree that if I had a sort of um, hierarchy of, how do I make sure that the experiences I'm having are generative and useful to me and the people around me and, and sort of overall good for the world? It would be, are they moving towards more perspectives having a place or are they moving to, which is positive, or if they're moving into a sort of, there's only one, like fewer perspectives, that's where I would see it as kind of uh, uh, more negative. It's, it's entropic and the other one is sort of generative. How do you... Concern, how do you discern, I guess, the, the quality of the, the consciousness that you enter? So you mentioned perspectives there. Do you also, I guess, judge the layers of complexity you're able to discern, et cetera? Do, do you ever 
do you kind of rank or rate the states of consciousness you're able to access in those experiences or, or how do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I think actually this is, um, my thinking has been helped in this by, by Trish Blaine, who I mentioned, who I've been, uh, who was kind of coaching me through, I still work with, was coaching me through the, um, the DMT trial because she has a model that I find quite useful, which is, um, sort of, uh, four forces of kind of human motivation, sort of connection, growth, um, expression and purpose. And I was trying to make sense of one of my DMT experiences with her. And she, uh, and I put this in the book actually, because it's quite useful. Um, in her view, like the, the, there's different types of non-ordinary or mystical experience, and they're not all the same because for example, um, a deep connection experience is that kind of, uh, all is one kind of, and I'm melting and deeply connecting to the whole universe and I sort of disappear, right? I'm kind of merging, but a purpose experience is more that kind of prophetic, like everything makes sense. And at this moment in history, everything is kind of coming together. So like when someone's in a manic state, they're often in this kind of purpose, prophetic kind of experience. Um, and then growth is this kind of life force, like a Kundalini kind of sexual energy experience, like expansion, growth, richness. Um, and then uh, purpose, What? which one did I miss? Purpose, connection expression and oh yeah expression is basically all is one and your unique point of the universe is right here right now and so you're a part of everything but you have to have this unique expression of perspective and so there's all quite different experiences right so there's no like single mystical peak experience those are just some and then there's like loads more that we could um explore and and the team at imperial in fact they developed this metaphysical beliefs questionnaire, which is kind of funny to fill out after the really huge DMT trip. It's like zero to 10, like, I believe the universe is entirely made of matter, you know? And it's like, and of course the studies find that, or it might be, I believe the universe is, is conscious and, and a kind of living kind of, you know, breathing entity in some sense. Um, DMT on the whole tends to make people more, uh, panpsychist and seeing the universe as conscious, except unless if they were a staunch materialists and they're just like, no, there's only matter. It doesn't really shift them. So but if they're sort of neutral or, or kind of moving towards being open to seeing the universe as alive and they'll go more that way, which is, makes sense. Um, so yeah. So in a sense, I don't rank the, the different state experiences because they're different experiences for different aspects of you. They're different yeah, ex states, or interpretations of states for different human experiences. Um, but I do think that some of them are more useful for people from my culture, or let's say the West um, than others. Uh, and for example, the, I had a, and the reason I say that is because the merging into there is no ego, I'm nothing experience is culturally quite difficult to integrate in a culture that's incredibly individualist, incredibly ego-focused. And I'm not even saying that it's wrong to be individualist or ego-focused. I would say actually it's wrong to be exclusively anything, right? It's, it's wrong to be too individualist and ego-focused while ignoring collectivism and connection and, and inter, interconnection of everything. Um, but of course, if you only have that, then your own individual expression is um, uh, not fully expressed, right? We, we don't get the magic of the unique perspective that everyone's bringing. So um, the, the experience in my final dosing on the DMT 
trial, I had this experience, which was basically the overview effect. I was in this vast ecosystem of consciousness and I felt so tiny within this ecosystem, not insignificant or like nihilistic, just really, really small in the grand scheme of things, which is of course the truth of, <laughs> that's the truth for all of us. But it was beautiful experience because I was like, oh, I can, I can have as much full expression of who I am and I could even be super egotistical but it's not going to matter really i mean it's like who cares right it's because it was kind of um balanced by a recognition that there's something much much greater than than all of us and we're all part of something much bigger um that's that's similar to the overview effect which is what astronauts uh, sometimes experience seeing the earth from space where they're just like it just puts things in perspective and you know you have some astronauts um became quite political and kind of spiritually oriented after that experience because they were like as soon as you see it, you're like, holy shit, all the petty squabbles are just so obviously meaningless when you see see that perspective. So that perspective shift, I think, is really can be really useful um, in the West in particular, probably everywhere, but in the West, I would say, yeah. Mm. And I think that's an incredibly useful model that you spoke to from, from Trish Blaine for, for making sense. I can already, just as you're describing, I can already see like levels of illusion that I had in my previous models of these um, levels of, of consciousness so that like space of that that astronaut effect that you can experience like in, in a psychedelic experience as well w- where would you group that amongst connection growth expression purpose yeah that's a that's a good point i would say um there's something of like a mix of there's an expression element to it because i'm still my unique self and my i'm still a unique point in the whole cacophony of of everything um, and then there's the very, there's also then a deep, I suppose, connection aspect of it too. It's probably an expression and connection mm-hmm. um, experience. Um, and of course it could be, it, it would have been a slightly different experience. It could have been a growth experience, but it could have been like suffused, you know, had I perhaps been suffused by the, just the creative energy of the universe, that would be that kind of growth aspect to it as well. Um, and then purpose would be more focused on um okay, I can see, well, there was a purpose element to it as well, because I had this sense in that experience that human beings are in an ecosystem of, of consciousness somewhere. Um, and, you know, who knows if any of this is, <laughs> it's very sci-fi, so I try and hold it lightly, but my sense was, yeah, um, or what I was being um, told by the teaching presence in my experience was that human beings exist in this ecosystem. And so there is, in a sense, a a purpose in the same way that in a forest there's a there's a purpose to where everything is in its individual niche and it was actually the sense that all these entities i was seeing were in different ecological niches that's what opened that whole experience up like everything just like completely changed and i had you know and but it was that exact thing of like oh it's an ecosystem and so if you're part of an ecosystem you have a purpose right so it's yeah important part of it Last kind of part or a key part of this exploration is using a practice with the outdoors to find the magic in the world, to find meaning through being able to cultivate an intimacy with the, the more than human world. Now, I'm glad you brought up Integral because the, uh, the, the kind of Gene Gibson map of, I think it's like mental, mythical, magical, um, primordial or, or is, is useful in that um, – my, uh, I was someone trapped in the mental until I got curious enough to dabble in psychedelics and it slowly kind of 
blown the doors open and changed my filters to um, be able to pick up um, what, what I'd call like energetic forces and almost cultivate that um, in a way to find meaning. So I'm not like certain that these forces exist or could be proved, but they are useful for me in getting regular access to inspiration, healing and connection um, that I see it as a modality. Um, and I think that there's utility in, in being able to get almost what I'd call ontological flexibility mm -hmm. to be able to change your filters to move from a strictly mental to a magical, to a mythical, etc. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And if so, what it looks like for you to move between those worlds. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great way to describe it. I love ontological flexibility. Um, I have a whole section of this in my book because I, um, I think it's absolutely key. It's another key skill for the times we live in, right? Like we're looking at our phone and, and we're in a different reality with different rules based on symbols, a bit like the unconscious, right? It's like a collective unconscious online. And then we look up and, and we're in nature or we're, you know, at someone's wedding or whatever it might be. So we're constantly dipping in and out of different, you could even argue ontologies, right? Different, certainly different appearancing, but the appearance of different worlds that have different rules in them. Um, and so I think the, the ability to, um, Terence McKenna used to call this running different operating systems, exactly what you're talking about, right? So it's like, okay, in this situation, I need to run shamanism 2.0. In the other situation, I need to run like uh, Londoner 1.5, right? And so, and you need to know when to when to use each one and be comfortable moving between them. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote a, an essay called "The Age of Breach" uh, a few years ago, which I kind of expand on in the book. And the idea being that um, the internet is a collective unconscious, and a lot of our new political movements and social kind of imagination is sort of um, churning away online with a life of its own and then erupting into the physical world. So the, the January 6th um, insurrection is a really good example of that. All these guys were sort of in this deep QAnon mythic online reality. And then suddenly they were in the real world and the rules are different. And it's like, oh shit, you know? And actually one of them from his prison cell said, uh, oh, fantasy hit rea reality hit fantasy like a like a ton of bricks you know and it's exactly that that point and so we need to get good at understanding that that mythic symbolic world that increasingly we're interacting with online which now even has entities like the dmt space because of ai which is another thing i talk about in the book it has seemingly intelligent entities it's weird it's all these kind of strange notions that don't need to be linked to the physical world identity is fluid and constantly shifting that's not the world of uh sort of that you can touch and feel outside like the forest is there it's real people are physically kind of in a particular place their identity of course identity might like fluid and shifting but they're in front of you as who they are they're not behind an avatar whatever it might be so you, you, you get into real trouble if you can't shift, but that's just two worlds, there's many more as well, right? If we can't fluidly shift between different ways of not just seeing the world, but different ways of being, then we're increasingly going to get overwhelmed and stuck in, in the world we live in. So that flexibility, I think, is um, yeah crucial for the times we live in. Absolutely.
Well, Ali, thank you so much for taking the time. This um, has, has been a really great conversation and kind of um, really helped develop a number of themes that I'm exploring. Um, and I think a lot of this very much aligns with the, the, the thesis and the ideas discussed in your book. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about um, the when that's coming out? Yeah, sure. So it's, I've, got a, I've got early copies here. It's not actually out yet at the time we're recording this. It's called The Bigger Picture how psychedelics can help us make sense of the world. And yeah, I mean, we've discussed a lot of it already. I'm really looking at um, what, what can, what we learn from the psychedelic experience. So from individual experiences, from psychedelic science, from you know, really psychedelic sociology and a number of different fields, how can that be, um, how can we take those insights and apply them directly to, to making sense of the times and finding ways through what I call the big crisis, what, what others have called the meta crisis. Um, all the many overlapping crises we face as a species from uh, climate degradation, climate change, environmental degradation, you know, political polarization, new, you know, all, all the uh, all the scary stuff. But kind of my argument is that if we can reframe and I think psychedelics are really reframing agents in a lot of ways, if we can reframe ourselves in relation to our problems and what our problems are, uh, we can open up the possibility for really significant social change. So instead of how to change your mind it's really how to change society with with a bunch of caveats about how complex that actually is but also a lot of hope amazing and is it june 13th that it comes out uh, yes june 13th mm-hmm. it's out yeah superb awesome well thank you so much for this yeah thank you tim it's a lot of fun thank you for listening to mountain whispers there is an awful lot of incredible listening content calling for our attention so it means a lot they chose this take a look at the show notes there's a lot of useful links that we discussed a lot of great thinkers in this conversation also if you're listening to this in june look out for the link to the book club that is going to kick off soon after this book comes out if you get it in time definitely follow the link and sign up for it if you enjoyed this episode please leave a review on whatever platform you use apparently makes a difference or even more importantly just link it to a friend that's much more meaningful look out for a new episode i want to say every month i don't know when it comes out uh it's hard to get a regular schedule especially as summer has now arrived but much love take care look out for the next one